Hey, just want to jump in and mention my sponsors. I'm doing them all in the front. Um, so I hope people appreciate that. That's kind of a new thing that's been going out in the podcast world. And this episode is such a great episode. Um, I'm so excited. I really am. Um, Kay Lisby's uh, interview, I hope you listen to that number 238, man. It just blew me away because she is the real deal. That arbitrage group she's running is just rocking it. I'm in it and I'm watching just people just knocking it dead. And, you know, for $149 for you to be able to get in there, um, there is a free week that she's giving if you go through my link and I have a link on this episode. Um, But, I mean, to me, that's how you can build up this Q4. And if you even can't get in, get on the waiting list because she's going to pull from there when somebody drops for whatever reason. So get in there, Gay Lisby's Million Dollar Arbitrage. I have a link, um, and you're also going to get that seven-day free trial. Seller Lab Scope. I can't talk enough about it. Um, I just got another note from somebody just saying, hey, what I was able to do with Scope and blah, blah, blah. That is so cool to me, hearing those successes and hearing that you heard it through my show. It just makes me tingle because it's like, Getting exposed to that stuff is how you figure it out, right? Somebody else has somebody else smarter than me has figured it out. I'm just bringing you the information. It's so neat to see. And so Scope's going to let you really work on your private label or wholesale and help you get the keywords right. Ultimately, that's how you get the buy box. You got to know what people are searching for. You put that in there. You get that adjusted to know exactly what they're searching for. And boom, you get found, right? Being found on that page one. How do you do it? By knowing the right keywords. How do you do that? Look at your competitors and use their keywords. That's how you do it. And Scope allows you to do that. I mean, it's just a powerful thing. Solutions for e-commerce. Karen Locker, you've heard me talk a lot about her. If you haven't met her, you should. A smart lady who knows what she's doing. I, for example, today had uh, four items where, um, I forget what they called it, uh, they were flagged for quality. They were quality alerts. That's what it was. And it turns out there's an image issue. And she's like, well, yeah, there's Amazon's now making a change. It has to be 80%, blah, 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 blah. I'm like, oh, I've lost interest already. Could you help me? And she's like, fixed. That's the value of having an account manager, right? Or when I get those calls, hey, I'm calling about case number, blah, blah, blah. I'm like, oh, that goes to my other person. And that just happens to be my team member who happens to be Karen, her team. Solutions for ecommerce.com slash momentum saves you 50 bucks. You're going to save 50 bucks and she's going to do an inventory health report for you. To me, that's value. Know what inventory is healthy. You got Q4. You still can get some inventory out as of this recording uh, for free. You probably want to do it. So jump on and get with her and tell her I sent you. So it's solutions4ecommerce.com slash momentum. GoDaddy is another sponsor, and I love what they're doing uh, because I'm a domain hoarder. We've already acknowledged that. I've got a problem. And I just love the fact that I could save 30% finally uh, because I never did. Uh, so try godaddy.com slash momentum and get your domain. But also buy that privacy. Look out there in one of the Facebook groups. You'll see somebody complaining about um, the lack of privacy. Well, buy the privacy. It's not that expensive. And again, you're saving 30% on it. It's really a smart deal. And Grasshopper. Try grasshopper.com slash momentum. It's the professional way to present your company. Uh, you don't have to carry a second phone. It's an app that goes on your phone, but it allows your calls to get routed effectively. And for real, I mean, I always say you can have them go press one for customer service, but that could go to your customer service team if you use one, right? That can go to that person. Or I'm surprised nobody's offering that services to us to 
to be the customer service department for a lot of us. We're a Zendesk in effect. Um, somebody should offer those services. But that's what's cool is you, you know, by using Grasshopper, they press two to get to that department and then they can come in and, and you know, effectively represent you. I just think it's so cool. So try grasshopper.com slash momentum. It's going to save you 50 bucks and you're going to be able to all of a sudden become that professional organization you want to become. Man, I just appreciate my sponsors. I hope you do too. Welcome to the e-commerce momentum podcast, where we focus on the people, the products, and the process of e-commerce selling today. Here's your host, Stephen Peterson. Welcome back to the e-commerce momentum podcast. This is episode 243, Mark Doust. You know, my mind raced so much talking with Mark because I couldn't get the questions out fast enough because I immediately went to another scenario. And what I think I did wrong in my thinking is I keep thinking worst case scenario, thinking of every little detail. And it's funny, you know, the more I talk with Mark, the more calm I got because it sounds like they've seen a lot of things. Mark represents a company, he actually started a company called Quiet Light Brokerage, uh, where he took and sold his e-commerce site. Actually, I think it was a um, uh, content site back then, but he sold it. And he tells the story how he sold it. He almost sold it for a little bit and waited and then got out. However, it just about doubled in value. And he tells about why. I mean, I think that's so important. The other thing I did get to ask him, but it was all the way at the end, so I'm giving you a heads up, is the sales tax question. It's a big issue. Um, probably no big surprise what his answer is, but I think it's important. Let's get into the podcast. All right, welcome back to the e-commerce momentum podcast. Uh, excited about today's guest, and I think a lot of people are going to be excited to hear what he has to say about possibly selling one of your e-commerce businesses and your website. Is there value? Is there a way to sell it, or have you been working for nothing? And he's going to explain it to us. Mark Doust, welcome, Mark. Hey, thanks so much for having me. Uh, it's great to have you here. But I say it the right way. And you have a company called Quiet Light Brokerage. Um, QuietLightBrokerage.com is the website. And you specialize, um, you and your team specialize in selling e-commerce or um, content uh, sites uh, on the internet, correct? Yep. We, we do anything that's online. And so okay. if it's an online business, SaaS, content, Amazon, uh, oh, so you'll even sell software. Oh, okay. Okay. Yep. Yep. We've done okay. we've done some of that, and uh, uh, and e even some services. But really, the bulk of what we do, if you were to break it down into like a pie chart, you know, the most of what we do is going to be e-commerce, followed by SaaS, followed by content. That's going to make up eighty-five percent of what we do. Well, and I'm going to jump to the last part where you mentioned that you actually help sell some services. What kind of service type of business have you helped sell? Because I assume uh, it's related to e-commerce or you know online somehow. Yep, I mean it's got to be online. So right. we've we've done we, we've worked with people that uh, have SEO agencies or uh, web design firms. Okay. Um, uh, we sold one business that did custom uh, business card printing, which is kind of that blend, right? It was a service, but also e-commerce as well. Um, right. Yeah. Right. And, and and who knows if they printed it themselves, right? I mean, I guess you would know that, but I mean, generally you don't have to anymore. There are so many brokers out there that broker deals. Um, in the old days, I was in the print business. That was one of the things they did. Got away from it, and now it seems to have come back uh, where, you know, lots of stuff is done by third parties. Uh, I have a friend who sells labels, for example, food labels for, you know, gazebo dressing. And they don't even print them anymore. 
They outsource that. And so for all those years they did, they now are just a broker. And so they mark it up, make a little bit of a, um, uh, a VIG on it, and uh, that's the way it is. And so, so I'm, I'm assuming there's quite a few of those kind of businesses out there that outsource a lot of their resources, correct? Absolutely. I think that's uh, uh, very much the, the style of most internet-based businesses. Mm-hmm. Now, there are some people out there that are owning the process from beginning to end, uh, but one of the appeals of the internet world is the ability to outsource and to be able to personally, within your own circle, within your own business, keep a fairly light infrastructure as to what you actually have um, and be able to, to pull in different parts. And um, you, you can really get away with, with that in the online world. And it makes sense to do that in the online world. Well, it's two questions. Uh, one, are you seeing more of that where, you know, companies are, you know, especially the ones that you sell, have fewer and fewer true employees and more contractors? And two, does that weaken the position of the company or enhance it? So I'm actually, it's split. I'm, if anything, I'm actually seeing a slight nudge, not a, not a huge push, but a slight nudge towards uh, bringing in your own employees and own resources. And I think it's sort of the maturation of the industry. Hmm. Um, about five, six years ago, uh, you know, drop shipping was still a big thing, not that it's not now, but uh, you, most businesses were drop ship. And then if you dealt with a company that uh, had its own inventory, that was kind of the, the rarity. And, and now you're seeing this push towards uh, owning a warehouse space or owning uh, the manufacturing process all the way through because there are certain advantages uh, in that, especially from uh, uh, an exiting standpoint uh, and protecting against competition. Hmm. Not that you can't uh, do that in, in other places as well or other business styles as well, but uh, I am seeing that, that slight push. As to whether or not it weakens or strengthens the position, uh, there's there's a uh, it's a double-edged sword right, mm, uh, right. from an exit standpoint if you own uh, the employees not that you own people but if you have your own employees as opposed to contractors if you have a physical warehouse space these things uh, help make your business more defensible from competition uh, but at the same time it makes it more difficult to transfer and so um, you have to find a buyer who's willing to take on the, the extra labor there uh, so depending on the size that you the, the business is um, I would tend to say it strengthens the business a little bit, but it comes with something of a cost as well. Yeah, it's not location independent then, right? If if somebody has to shut down a plant or a, a, a warehouse and then move it to another state, that complicates things, especially depending on the size, right? So you've got, in, in my state, they have the WARN Act. If you have uh, X number of employees that you're going to, you know, terminate. And that, and that just also doesn't make it very popular when you sell it, right? Um, nobody likes to see a company get shut down or all the people let go, right? And, and that stuff nowadays would be put out into the social media world, where in the old days, I don't think anybody ever noticed. So, so let's go back to why you're in the e-commerce mostly, um, and the online selling uh, world. You were in college when you started your first website? What, what were you doing? Boy, I, I think it was 1998, the first website that I oh started. Oh, my God. But, 1998. Know, right? There was no internet then. Al Gore didn't invent it yet. <laughs> <laughs> right. Uh, I remember when Yahoo launched uh, and, and going on there and saying, wow, what is this thing? Um, uh, no, the, the first business that I started, so I, uh, outside of college, uh, I got a job with an internet firm uh, and they provided uh, really? web what, what were you? Uh, what was your major? Uh, my major was business and mm. um, not exactly. It's just unusual though that you got a job with an internet firm unless you lived in California. That's unusual. It, it really was. And I lived in this really, uh, the, the college I went to was uh, a small school called Franciscan University of Steubenville. Steubenville is this old oh, yeah, sure. steel town. Uh, it's famous for one thing. 
Dean Martin used to live there. He was huh. born and raised there, right? Anyone that you talked about Steubenville, they know it. They're like, oh, Dean Martin was raised there. Yeah, that that's where he was. And the small internet firm uh, set up shop there. It said they had offices in Baltimore, Maryland, and they set up a shop in in Steubenville, Ohio. Why? I don't really know. Hmm. Um, but they they were the first cPanel. Everybody knows cPanel, right? If you've ever had a hosting account, you've probably encountered cPanel to manage. Um, your hosting environment. Well, they were cPanel before cPanel was cPanel. In fact, the company that that started that uh, modeled it off of what we were doing. And so I got my first job out of college working for them. I was an account manager uh, and uh, dealt with uh, all sorts of different uh, clients. And after two years of working with them, I I got let go from that position and uh, started what I called being professionally unemployed. Hmm. Uh, I was pretty dejected and thought, you know, if I can just get let go like that, why should I work for another company? Let me stop you there a second, because I want to understand what an account manager does. What skill set did you learn from that? It was relationship-based sales. Okay. So the account manager, in in my position there, um, I was there to act as the friendly face for the company, to the the uh, the customers that were paying ongoing monthly. like a liaison, and then that way they didn't have to deal with the coders. Exactly, and then I would also <laughs> be there to remind them when they needed to buy more services, okay, right? and, and upgrade various things. Okay. So it was a sales position. Uh, it, I got a salary. I got commission uh, on top of that, but it was very much relationship based sales. So and and was the internet taking off at that point yet, or no? So that was the first dot com bubble, and that was my rude introduction into the world of the internet. Oh, so that's why uh, you were let go. So that, it, not as not performance-based or, you know, whichever, it was clearly you were a, you know, just a cog in the wheel that just got broken because the car stopped moving. Actually, no, it was, uh, I, I got let go after that. So what, <laughs> the way it happened was I, I moved to Whoa. Baltimore, got that position, and I had just a handful of clients. It was like three or four clients at the time. And we had about a 30-person staff, uh, account managers and salespeople. And I walked in one Monday morning, and something was happening. And uh, next thing you know, out of the 30 people that were employed, they kept four of us. And I was one of the four because I was new and I was cheap. (laughs) No kidding. My my client list went from three or four to 220 clients. Did they run out of money? I mean, was it, you know, was it, okay, so it was funded and the funding ran out. Yep, it's like so many companies at that time, the, the valuations were, you know, VCs were just throwing money at these companies, but they didn't have a real revenue plan mm-hmm. yeah. uh, at all. And so uh, they, they quickly were running out of money, realized we needed to cut staff dramatically. We're going to stick with the cheapest guys, which are these guys we just hired. And oh, by the way, you just went from three or four clients up to 220. <laughs> you need to call every one of them and tell all of your clients that we're doubling their rates, their monthly rates. That's popular. Uh, so you were the popular guy. Uh, yeah, I, those were some very interesting phone calls. <laughs> yeah, how many of them stuck? I mean, so out of 220 clients, how many of them stayed? Almost every one of them because it was a very, very sticky product. So our, our company provided uh, the back-end infrastructure for web hosting companies. So if I wanted to start a web hosting company, I could either set up a bunch of servers and have a, a you know full technical staff and everything else, or I could go with this other company and they managed all that for you. They had the servers, they had the technical staff, they had the software, the billing software, everything else. So it made it really easy, talking about outsourcing, made it really easy to just set up a website saying we're a web hosting company and you're basically reselling web hosting services. Hmm. Well, it was really hard for these people to move off the service because they would have to set up the infrastructure, move all the clients, 
and it was not something that people could do very easily. So we lost very, very few clients. Do, do you think, looking back at that, um, because I think it's a, it's an interesting point, um, they, it's almost like a bait and switch, right? Basically, hey, bring them in at a low cost, and then once they're hooked, uh, like the heroin, they can't get off then you can raise your prices. If they had raised their prices right from day one, if they just charged the, if 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 the, the new cost was the right cost, if they would have charged the right cost from day one, do you think the company would have lasted? Uh, that's a good question. I don't know. Okay. You know, the, the company uh, later on got bought out and uh, um, a lot of those clients, you know, I say that we, we kept all those clients, but a lot of those clients started putting their new customers with different right, services. Right, They started a B plan. They're like, nobody else, just like you, yeah. nobody else is going to hold me hostage ever, right? I mean, that's what it, they're thinking. It, it was a lesson. It was, yeah. it was a lesson. For in, everyone, yeah. It shouldn't be you know, dependent on this one vendor because they can absolutely take us to the cleaners. And so, hmm. um, yeah, we, we did lose clients in that way. And then eventually when a lot of them outgrew our services, they, they moved off after, you know, two or three years. Um, so... It did hurt the business in the long run. Hmm. You know, when you sit and think about that, that's so uh, relevant today. You know, when uh, a lot of listeners to the show here are going to be mostly Amazon, right? Because that's the hot place to be, right? It's the easiest to, I mean, it's not the easiest to manage, but it's the easiest to get listings done and all the rest of that jazz, right? However, there are lots of listeners who have been suspended, right? Their whole business has been shut down because they only have that one. And lots of people have gone out of business because they put all their eggs in a basket, borrowed the money, bought a bunch of crap, didn't sell, or then they got shut down, and boom, they're out of business. So there's a lesson that's very well uh, established today. When I've been saying this for for a little bit now about Amazon businesses, because we see a lot of them come through, people mm -hmm. that are selling their Amazon businesses, and uh, I've had some buyers come up to me and tell me that they wouldn't touch an Amazon business because they're worried about them. Hmm. Now, I think there's tons of opportunity there. I think that you can create a sustainable Amazon business uh, that, that's protected from that. But I would always recommend diversifying outside of Amazon uh, once you're able to do so. Um, I, wouldn't, I wouldn't even look at a business if it was Amazon only, personally. Yeah. No, and, and, and I think... I think every vendor is saying the same thing because today, correct me if I'm wrong, it's simple to diversify off of Amazon. Now, whether it will sell, anything will sell, that's another issue. But to get a, a, another channel is very simple, correct, and, and automated. Yeah, absolutely. Hmm. Absolutely. Okay. And so so there's your advice. Is that um, – so I, I have an Amazon business and I come to you for advice – is that what one of the first things you look at um, to say, is this an Amazon-only business, or does it start a lot deeper than that? Um, I mean, it's going to be one of many things that we look at. So if, so if somebody wants to sell an Amazon business, they might come to us to, to you know, figure out how much is this worth right now. Mm -hmm. And so we're going to do an entire valuation, and we're going to look at things like, are you private labeling, um, or are you reselling? Are you picking and, and uh, listing? You know, these things really affect how much your business could potentially But all worth. of them can be sold, correct? Most of them can be sold. Okay, most the one of that can't would be uh, the people that are picking and, and listing. So people that are garage sale shopping, looking for deals, and then relist them on Amazon. That That's not something that really transfers over to somebody e else. Even if, even if, I just want to make sure I'm clear on this because somebody just mentioned this to me. They There's a, somebody out there pitching a course, and they sell a million dollars of used merchandise on Amazon. So they buy, actually, I think that the way the model works is they buy Amazon uh, returns, you know, truckloads from Amazon, and then they sell it back on Amazon. However, they don't misrepresent it. They sell it as used, used like new or whatever the, whatever they're allowed to do. 
that model, and they're selling a million dollars away. So they have a standard, uh, they have a, um, a pretty good source, right? I don't think Amazon's going to run out of stuff to sell, right? And they're, they're, it sounds sustainable. It sounds like it's scalable because to be able to do a million, you're clearly at scale. Would that sell? Yeah, that, okay. that, that could sell. Uh, so the, that's the, the key, exception. Yeah, well, the, the key that you have to keep in mind would be the transferability. Can somebody else do this? Uh, and, mm. and when I say that the, the picking and, and selling, what I'm talking about are I've run into Amazon sellers that are doing some good amounts of money, but they're going around to local garage sales and finding old records and then selling them up on uh, putting them up on Amazon, right? And so they buy them for a buck and they sell them for 10, 15 bucks. Okay. Um, that sort of thing is much more difficult to, to sell because it's not as transferable. Uh, there's skill in what you're personally doing and being able to identify uh, the, that, that uh, inventory. And it's not very scalable either. But what you're talking about is something different. There's a system there. Um, and, and that system can be uh, relegated to standard processes, that's something that can transfer over. So mm. what we're looking for would be defensibility from competition, uh, how defensible is it, uh, and uh, also is it transferable to somebody else? Can somebody else do what you're doing uh, and, and do it as effectively as you can? If those two things are there and there's money and being made, then, yeah, that's probably going to be sellable. Okay, and and so the the multiples then are, you know, a million other factors. But those th- uh, those two things... Uh, well, technically three things, like you said, is there money being made? Those make it um, possibly worth uh, someone else, um, somebody else would be interested in. Does the length of age of your account and the um, categories that you're approved in affect uh, the number? I mean, you're going to be like, duh, of course, Steve, but just want to make sure I'm, I'm clear on that. Yeah, it, it does. And the older that the account is, the better. Um, uh, buyers and people that are going to write a check for six or seven figures for your your Amazon business um, want to see enough history so that they can uh, understand the sustainability of uh, the business. So the more history you have, the better. The categories do impact, especially if you're in a protected category, because obviously that's difficult to get into. Mm-hmm. Uh, and there's some defensibility from competition. So the categories can influence uh, positively. Okay. And then the fact that if you had daily payouts from way back, those kind of things would impact too. Absolutely. Okay. All right. And, and so, I mean, that's common sense stuff and, and, and I apologize for that, but I just want to make sure people hear that when they start thinking about these things. So the criteria again, to go back to, you know, if there's a business and it doesn't have to be an Amazon, it could be an eBay business, correct? Or an Etsy business or a Shopify site, right? All of those uh, are people not would Etsy. buy, not Etsy. Oh, that's at, interesting. At, at, Etsy oh. and... Yeah, you, you can't transfer an Etsy store. Even though I show you how to make the most unbelievable wool socks that I knit personally in my living room. Can you imagine that? And I teach you how my Steve Stitch, it's its patented. I mean, it's amazing stitch. And I teach you that skill set. And then you then take it over. They will not allow it to sell. No, they don't. They Etsy's say, probably the, the strictest of the lot. And we've run into some issues. We've... we've the, the only way that you can sell an Etsy account that we're aware of would be having the buyer set up their own Etsy account mm-hmm. and then directing all of your sales over to them. But okay. you're going to take an absolute hit on what what you're uh, uh, getting for the business because of that. Um, so it, it, it's possible, I guess. I, I would say it's possible. and Maybe those things will change. But right now, um, we, we actually just had a deal recently that would have been well in the six figures, close to seven figures where um, it got dismantled because the terms are pretty ironclad. And Etsy themselves has proven to be pretty aggressive 
um, in enforcing this. Um, you have to own the process yourself. You must be manufacturing the, the materials yourself. They're pretty aggressive in, in enforcing that. So that's und- undid a deal for you. Um, uh, so what what if um, I want to continue going forward? I ju- then just have to start a brand new store, correct? And, yep. and prove to Etsy that I'm making it now in my lim- – Steve's Stitch is now Mark's Stitch, right, I guess is what you would say. And then you would have to prove that that's being made and then meet their requirements, um, but basically start from the beginning, which is a yeah, challenge. And you're starting from the beginning, but maybe with like a little bit of a push and assist. The only uh, arrangement that I can see working with Etsy would be uh, the seller agreeing, I'm going to keep my store open. And when I get orders, I'm going to uh, right. contact people and say, I'm not making these anymore. Go over to this place. They're making them the exact same way I did before. Um, so you, you could do that. You could set up an arrangement like that. But instead of getting, you know, a two and a half or three time multiple on your earnings, you're going to take much lower multiple. I don't know what that number is just yet. Um, because we haven't seen that done yet, but uh, yeah, Etsy is Etsy's kind of a thorn in my side. Uh, they're a big marketplace. You can make lots of money on Etsy. Uh, you can do a lot of really cool things with Etsy. But you know, with all these platforms, uh, keep in mind most of these companies they own the information, they own the store. The they're customer the is there, so that's right. It is yep. their customer, not your customer. And that's exactly. really important. Well, let me ask you this. All right. So I think about that. So now I have a Shopify site because I've added it, right? So, and, and, and this is probably going to be another dust, Steve, of course. You have an Amazon store, right? You're, you're merging some listings over on eBay, doing, you know, Joe Lister, Casey, whatever, whatever you're doing. And you're bringing them over to Bonanza, Newegg, any of the other, you know, 20 sites out there. Um, things are going well. Um, however, again, I sit back and I don't own a customer. Now I go and start a Shopify site. And, you know, Shopify integrates with Amazon. Shortly, it's going to integrate with eBay. And I start driving traffic, you know, via Facebook or Instagram, whatever it is. How valuable is that Shopify site now that I have a customer base and I have some kind of, uh, you know, uh, customer service um uh, software managing that. How much more valuable is that company because of that? In my opinion, it adds fairly significant value. Um, and and it's, it's would it really- be the most? I mean, is it the way to enhance? I mean, so you're doing millions on Amazon. Is it the biggest factor you can do to to multiply some more value out of that existing Amazon business? Uh, saying the biggest, probably not. Okay. Um, Probably not, but keeping in mind that that there are so many factors that influence value for any individual business, maybe. So for your business, maybe that's that's the number one thing. And and this is something that we do uh, for people all the time, right? They'll they'll reach out to us, they'll find the the value of the business now, and we'll help them identify you need to do X, Y, and Z. These are the things that are going to make uh, your business more valuable. And, and if I, if you do these things, your business is valued at you know. 3x right now. However, we've seen other businesses now go to 4x because of these things. Is that kind of the way the advice goes? And then you can kind of do the math? Yeah, exactly. I mean, those multiples might be a little bit high for mm-hmm. uh, for what we are getting for e-commerce businesses, but the concept is right, right? So we might come in and say, right now your business is worth you know, $1.2 million. If you do two these two, three, four things, it's going to increase uh, up to maybe 1.4 or 1.5 million. One of the most dramatic uh, examples we've seen uh, was a business that that uh, over the course of a month and a half changed its valuation from, I believe it was around $350,000 to over $700,000. Whoa. Um, Whoa. Yeah. So they doubled their value in how many months? In, in about a month and a half. And I'll tell you what, what, what it uh, uh, all involved. 
it was the way they were keeping their their accounting books oh. um and that was it. It was just a matter of accounting and doing the accounting properly. Um, so the, the the thing that I always say is most in your control would be your documentation, getting the accounting right, getting it clean, getting it really, really well organized. I mean, super uh, organized. You can add a lot of value to your business just by doing that. Mm. Um, the factor that's most influential on value would be the trend of your business. Um, so if it's growing or staying the same or shrinking, that's going to either deflate the, the trend of the category or the trend of the business period, Tr- trend of the business period, specifically talking about the revenue and okay. the earnings of the business, right? That your top line and bottom line numbers, how are those going? Cause if you're, if you're starting to lose money or maybe the revenue is starting to dip, um, these are kind of warning signals and they're going to really kind of deflate the value pretty quickly. But if you're growing at a steady pace, let's say that you have three years of 10 to 15% growth. Man, that's phenomenal. That's good. That's going to be something that's going to add a lot of value to the business. And the fact that it's an Amazon, an eBay, not an Etsy, I won't say them, that data <laughs> is, in theory, more trustworthy, right? It's kind of audited by an independent, you know, third party, Amazon or eBay, right? As long as the reports, you know, aren't doctored or what have you, that really helps um, helps uh, show that those those these, those aren't just made up numbers and wishing numbers, right? Well, we would have done ten percent, but you know, well, you know, there's a story. This is real, right? And it's trackable and it's easy. And again, it's third party. Yeah, it, and that that certainly helps. But don't stop with that. I mean, you you definitely want to have good numbers on everything else in your mm-hmm. business, your inventory specifically, right? This is one of the things that's really hard to track, but uh, it needs to be tracked well. Um, so yes, having those those marketplaces helps because you do have that third-party reporting. When you're selling your business and going through that, it all comes down to that third-party documentation. Do you have it? it you, you need it. And does that properly reflect all the things in your business, mm-hmm. um, uh, all the elements in your business? So uh, you know, we recommend to people to start collecting that, obviously, from day one, but at least 12 months before you, you uh, decide to sell your business, um, if possible. You know, have that stuff collected recorded and stored and tax returns filed that tie to everything right i mean that's a pretty big important one too yeah absolutely and people get worried about that because they say well you know i don't want to pay a lot of taxes so my accountant reduces the income by using things like amortization depreciation you know various accounting things which are totally legitimate uh, and that's fine um you know people people need to understand that there's actually a process we go through that accounts for that. Um, it's almost as if, I don't want to say there's two sets of books, but what we show people when we're doing evaluation is we want to get in on how much does this business actually generate over the course of a year where an owner can spend that money at their discretion, right? Uh, so um, we don't count things like the owner's salary or personal benefits. We don't count amortization or depreciation. I don't want to get too accounting geeky on you here, uh, but uh, I'm not minding so, it. Hmm. Okay, well, just so people know, I, you know, what's on your income uh, on your uh, tax return? That's not necessarily the number that we go off of, but that's a good start uh, hmm. of, of uh, where we're going to uh, start working. So they're going to exclude a whole bunch of things because they figure, you know, structurally they're going to they're going to pick and choose what they want to do, right? And uh, so that 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 takes all those other things away. So if I take a huge salary just to minimize my um, my debt, which probably isn't the smartest move, but however, right, uh, just just I take a big salary, that won't affect the value of my business um, because that's going to get excluded out, and then it's going to be based on that number prior. Well, that's a question. So when I see that you're selling at a multiple of three or three point four six or what have you, is it revenue only, or is it, e- or I don't want to say EBITDA, is it um, some type of uh, profit? 
is some type of profit. So it's called seller's discretionary earnings. So that's the, the technical name for it. And mm -hmm. uh, what we do is we take a look at the expenses and the revenues and we back out uh, amortization, depreciation. Uh, we, we start with EBITDA. So right. uh, earnings before interest, taxes, uh, uh, depreciation. depreciation, amortization. Mm -hmm. So we start with that number, but then we also go through and we add back those things that fall into this kind of easy discretionary area, right? Um, you, you, uh, uh, You're not taking out my Mercedes, are you? Well, we'll take out your Mercedes. Oh, that's, that's a discretionary expense. Oh, you know, uh, most internet businesses have that auto line expense somewhere in there, and you're not really needing that. Oh, car, man. Right? Come on, it's man. Fantastic. I look good in it, though. <laughs> you get to keep it. Yeah. Uh, oh, all right, cool. All right. It's actually going to add value to the business. Um, we're going to take out the owner's salary because there's so many ways an owner can pay themselves, right? Mm -hmm. You pay yourself through distributions and through a salary. So we're going to remove that, and how much you pay yourself is up to you. Um, but we're going to remove things like true one-time expenses. You built an app for your business, and that's something that's only going to happen once. So we're going to back stuff like that out. Are you Th backing capital out? Uh, how so? Um, well, uh, I bought a forklift this past year, um, and I was able to deduct it as a one-time expense without having to depreciate it because it's met the requirements. Uh, possibly. It depends. Uh, we would probably back that out for the valuation uh, purposes, uh, and we've actually never had that scenario, so I'd have to look back to see what we would do specifically. Uh, but my instinct would say initially, yeah, we would back that out, and then we would have to talk about whether or not that's transferring over to the new owner. Um so and th those are the type of items that would get. Uh, so, so the balance sheet doesn't, other than debt, affect the valuation, or it does. Usually, it does not. It it should probably. <laughs> well, inventory obviously would. I mean, that that's a inventory given, does. right? That would be a given, yeah. right? But but fixed asset. Well, I mean, if I own a building, obviously that's going to affect it, right? I, mean, I guess those are extremes. Um, well, so what, what we're actually going to do for the valuation is we're going to look first at that, the earnings portion, mm -hmm. and we're going to value the business based on the earnings. Now, if there are other assets that are going to go along with the business, such as inventory, those get valued separately and added on top. So we might value your business as a three times on the earnings, right? And, and uh, so if you're making a million dollars per year of discretionary earnings, um, your business might be worth $3 million. And then we have to count for what's the wholesale value of your inventory. We'll throw that up on top. Mm -hmm. And are there other assets that are being transferred over, such as uh, a forklift or uh, you know boxes, right? This is a typical thing: boxes and shipping mat uh, materials. Then we're going to add those on top of that, top of that as well. Uh, so those get valued separately and added up on top of the value of the business itself. Nice. So consumables. And so, so, so I'm thinking about this, right? I'm thinking of. The guy who's listening to this who's saying, hmm, I have a private label product, um, have a patent on it, uh, been doing fairly well with it, been moving it around on different platforms, got a pretty good sales history with it for the last few years. Um, unfortunately, like most private label products, there's a shelf life to them. And I'm thinking about, do I want to get it out and sell it? Is it worth me getting a second Amazon store and moving that product over into that store so when I do sell it, I don't lose all the rest of the merch, uh, all the rest of my business? Because I don't want to go out of business. I mean, what's what's the logic there? Um, so if I'm understanding the the question correctly, and correct me if, uh, if I'm wrong, but that would probably be problematic okay. um, because when you're selling a business, a buyer is going to expect you to sign a non-compete. Now. 
The well, no, I, I'm not going to make it again. So let's just say we're selling uh, water glasses because these things are really, you know, nobody's ever seen these before. So I'm selling my water glasses and I'm mm-hmm. selling guitar strings because that's what I like, right? So the business is going great. However, the water glass business, I want to sell that. So is it, Got it. you know, that's what I'm scenario. So I'm going to get yep. rid of the water glass. I'm out of the water glass business. I'm going to go play guitar and, you know, whatever. Um, that, that's the scenario I'm talking about. And, and that would be fine. Absolutely. Okay, so that makes sense to do it that way, or what makes sense? I, I think it absolutely makes sense to do it that way. Okay, yeah. okay, and you've seen that. Okay, so let's talk about this. So you have uh, started a business and sold a business, so this is not something new to you. You've been through the cool part, the romance, the, you know, I guess if, you're probably looking back, you wouldn't call it that now, but you put your heart and soul into creating a business, and then you let it go, right? Yeah. Yeah. In fact, uh, anyone at Quiet Light Brokerage that works as an advisor, we've all been through that process. No kidding. Um, of starting a business, buying a business, selling a business, um, and, and not just a small, you know, five ten thousand dollars site. So, um, yeah, I've been through that. Although, you know, you talk about the romance of it. I, I think selling it was part of it as well. It was that uh, feather in the cap of yeah, sold yeah. business. Yeah, there, there's no doubt um, that it's like, oh, yeah, you know, oh, what do you do? Well, you know, I'm kind of just doing not much of what I've sold my internet business. And then everybody's like, whoa, you know, you're, <laughs> you're, we're all thinking that, you know, you're uh, Mark Cuban, right, who uh, sold and got billions for his uh, his company, right? Um, although, doubt many of them go, what's the average selling price that you guys have for your clients, right? I think your stats show... Um, that you've helped sell 600 plus businesses, a hundred plus million dollars in websites sold. I can't do that math. Uh, but, and there'll be uh, bad numbers to go off of because okay. there's some estimation in there. I didn't keep the greatest of records when we started up. Uh, over the past couple of years, our average deal size is about $750,000. Really? So 750,000, what kind of revenue is a typical company that's selling for 750? Uh, you know, for e-commerce, it actually typically, approximates to about one times revenue so usually around that that mark okay okay and so um and what makes that not as valuable as a um uh, a content site um it it wouldn't necessarily not be as valuable as a content site where the difference would be would be that the the costs uh, associated with an e-commerce business are going to be significantly higher than with a content site. Right. Or, so, or software, uh, right? Once you develop it, that's the hardest part, right? Now, maintaining it's separate, but the sunk right. costs are sunk. Okay. All right. So, exactly. So, yeah, yeah an e-commerce business, if, you, if you're doing, let's say, to make the numbers easier, if you're doing a million dollars of revenue, your bottom line earnings are going to be 250 to 350 in most businesses. Well run. Right? That, I mean, that's a well run e-commerce. Yeah, well, exactly. Well run. If you have a SaaS company doing a million dollars in revenue, your bottom line earnings are probably going to be between five hundred and seven hundred thousand dollars, significantly higher. It's mm. just there, there's fewer expenses associated with software. Uh, Everybody says that's where the money is. Go to the software. Go to the software. Yeah, and, they're, they're definitely popular. <laughs> they're definitely popular, especially you know. And, and I think about it, you know, for Amazon, I, I had somebody on who's uh, out in uh, California, and he's like, "Oh yeah, we're all working for Amazon right now." You know, just on Amazon businesses because that's the market right now. And he said, "When it changes and it's, you know." ring or whatever it's going to be next we'll all go there because that's where the developers go that kind of neat you know and yeah. uh interesting okay so you you start a business you sold a business uh more than once what what have you learned i mean what would you go back and do different from that first one to what you know now 
I would do a lot different with that Ooh. first one. So I, I I tell this story at conferences sometimes. Uh, and I've stopped telling it because uh, I fear that some people have probably heard it a few times. Um, but the story of selling my first business, uh, you know, I started it and it was only a few months after I started it. I thought, well, maybe I should try selling it. I'm making some money and I wanted to do something different. And so I contacted a broker and uh, he told me, he said, you know, if you sold this now, you might get twenty five, thirty thousand dollars for it. It's like, why don't you wait a year? You've got a good thing going. Wait a year and then contact us again. And I did, and we ended up selling it for one hundred and sixty five thousand dollars. Whoa, so, good advice. Um, yeah, very good advice, right? And the only thing I did was really wait. And and more importantly, I've put history on the books. History makes such a big difference. You didn't go back though and adjust and do. He didn't give you a kind of a checklist. These are the things, kind of like you were describing what you would do to someone else. You didn't have any of that. Nope, nope, uh, no none kidding. of that. None of that. And, and frankly, it would have been really, really helpful because the person that I sold to ended up getting an offer for the business without growing it at all, by the way. I ended up getting an offer for the same business for over $350,000. Oh, dude, I'm um, sorry. He didn't take it. <laughs> I'm sorry. What you, but you that know had what? to hurt. I, I mean, I was kind of like, well, okay, I, I probably should have done something different. <laughs> And what he did is he focused in on the things that, that we now preach all the time, right? You have to make a business transferable, which I didn't really do with that. Well, well let's break these down because this now you're giving power knowledge here. So let's do this. Make a business transferable. Tell us what that means. What that means is you shouldn't be the business. Now, in that, in that first business, I was the salesperson. I talked to advertisers. I secured their sponsorships. I actually wrote the code for the website and did most of the designs. And I wrote the articles for that. that, uh, for, that so it was you, <laughs> period. It was me 100% top to bottom. If I were to change that business around uh, before I sold it, I would have hired a writer and started to have that writer publish stuff. I would have. And let's pause there a second. So However, that would have affected the profitability of the business, Mark, right? So, so you were making X amount of money. Now you're going to hire a writer, right? But that's going to make me less profitable. But I'm selling as a multiple of profits. So you're kind of talking out of both sides there. I, but what people need to keep in mind is the growth associated with that, right? Um, if you can, mm. uh, if you uh, outsource some tasks with, uh, with your, your business, you can usually grow the business as well. And I know it's easy to say. No, uh, I get it. I, I, I get what you're saying. But that then means that you've got to start planning sooner, right? So yes. your advice is, I mean, could you even do that in a year? I mean, is a year a reasonable amount of time? Yes, I, I think it's uh, okay. 12 to 18 months is is what I would uh, recommend. Now, I'm going to speak out of both sides of my mouth again here <laughs> and say that uh, as you're preparing to sell, you might have some of those, those uh, expenses on your books that you might want to take off. Uh, for example, I worked with a client who wanted to sell uh, a dating service, a dating site, and uh, one of the things he did about 14 months before uh, he sold is uh, he stopped using the customer service people he was using and started doing customer service himself. Um, he was living a lifestyle business before where he didn't really have to work that much. And then uh, he decided, well, I'll put in three, four hours per day and save that that money and add to the value of my business. Um, for what I was doing with my particular business, the reason that I would have hired staff 
uh, or, or writers is because it would have made the business not about me. Hmm. And that would have made it more transferable. More buyers would have been interested in it. So, yeah, it would have reduced the profitability. There may have been some growth there that would have occurred. But even if there wasn't growth, I would have had a substantially higher multiple on the business because it was more transferable. And um, so so that's important. So no one who's going to buy it is going to be able to do all those things. But they might be able to do the coding or they might be able to do the customer service. But they're not going to be able to do that and code and sell and this, right? That nobody's other than you who put the life into this business are jack of all trades, right? Uh, buyers generally. Right. And I think the other point to, to make here is most buyers don't want to buy a job. Right. Um, so especially you didn't mind creating I, one because it was your baby, right? Right. Yeah, well, absolutely. And, it, you know, I was a small enough business at that point where it was a job. It was a job that I enjoyed at the time. And I was able to find somebody who was willing to uh, take the hit on his own personal return uh, and turn it into a lifestyle business. But, um, uh, yeah, so that will be the, the number one thing that I, I would have done with okay. that. Is so 12 to 18 months, 12 to 18 months, you know, uh, start getting it transferable. Love it. Okay. What's next? Uh, the, the the documentation, and I already touched on this once before, mm-hmm. um, but uh, and and the broker that I worked with didn't really require much in the way of documentation. I can look back now, ten years of Quiet Light Brokerage. The biggest improvement we made with Quiet Light Brokerage early on uh, came as a result of a buyer approaching me and saying, "How do you expect me to make a good decision with the information you're giving me?" Mm-hmm. I thought that's actually a pretty valid objection. <laughs> so yeah, uh, yeah, uh, right. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, exactly. Was, well, oh, yeah, I should probably be uh, having people provide more information. Documentation, uh, and I've, again, Ray touched on this, but it, you have 100% control over it, uh, and it adds value to your business. And, and let's just go deeper on that. So it's a balance sheet, an income statement, and sales reports, right? Um, those are pretty, pretty, all those things are pretty important. Yeah, and let's go a little bit deeper and say um, standard operating procedures. Mm. Who works with your business? Oh. What do they do? What's the organization structure? Uh, I'll tell you a story about uh, somebody that I worked with. I actually uh, closed on her business last year uh, around this time. And uh, uh, we did a private uh, shopping for her where we only approached uh, about, uh, I think it was 10 or 11 buyers um, with her business. She got offers from 30% of the people that we approached within a few days. Wow. And the reason is she was so well organized and so well documented that a business that was good, but, you know, I'd say was slightly above average as far as the business itself was concerned, uh, was so well buttoned up that it was super easy for buyers to uh, determine whether or not they wanted to move forward with it. Uh, And it removes the question. People forget about the soft side of this. You know, there's a lot of hard data analytics and everything else, but there's a soft side as well where a buyer is saying, I'm going to be risking six or seven figures. Maybe I'm taking out a loan on this uh, on this business as well. I'm going to be responsible for that loan. Um, there's that element of fear. Being organized helps reduce that element of fear significantly, and it also allows people to really uh, the buyers to really address: Can I make a return on my investment with this? Hmm. So that that standard operating procedure is so powerful. Um, vendors. Um, suppliers, all that kind of information. Again, is it presented in a binder? And, you know, I'm dating myself by saying binder. People probably don't even know what a binder is anymore. But, you know, is it presented in some e-commerce world? I guess it has to be electronic now. Um, in some kind of, you know, uh, slideshow type of presentation. I mean, is it really that formal of a presentation now? 
No, not not upfront. So upfront, um, at least the way that that our process works, we don't get into that level of detail upfront. Upfront, everything is representative. In other words, the the person selling the business is going to say, "Here's what my numbers are." And we'll present the numbers. We'll present you know the profit and loss statements and balance sheet if that's applicable in this in that case, and inventory numbers and other reports like that. But the proof, you know, the the statements and everything else. That happens after you find a buyer and you're locked up with just one buyer. You, you don't want your tax returns floating around. Yeah. With 80 well, and I'm, I'm worried about somebody copying my model. You know, Mark, I, yep. I built this business. I don't want to sell all my secret sauce until they're ready to really buy it. You know, I don't want somebody just coming in, copying it, and then going out and saying, oh, let's just go start this business. It's a great business. Yep, and that's why we wait until there's an actual offer on the table and you're working with one person. Um, that that really sets up a much more intimate situation uh, and provides much heavier consequences for anyone that would abuse that process. And at that point, yeah, there, there's usually an exchange of information. It happens over either Google Drive or Box.com or one of these these uh, file sharing services. Hmm. Um, and then that's organized in folders and everything else. So people and, go about it different ways. But And you're protected speaking, by NDAs, I assume, at that point. Yeah, you're protected by NDAs up front. So uh, any buyer that works with us has an NDA on file with us. But then there's additional confidentiality clauses in place when somebody submits an offer. And then for that super sensitive information, that secret sauce, you know, there are ways to protect against that as well, where um, we might say, hey, Mr. Buyer, we'll give you all of the, the tax returns and bank statements for you to now verify that what we said was true and that we didn't leave anything out. But I'm not going to give you my vendor names until the very, very last uh, minute. Or or on some occasions, we'll even do a binding purchase agreement that has just a conditional clause in it that says the vendor has to transfer over under the same terms. Right. And so we're really wrapping things up in a pretty nice tight bow to protect that information. How many how many people are just kicking the tires? I mean, obviously, you know, people are like, oh, I'm looking at e-commerce business, 10 hour weekly workload. All right. You already got me at hello there. Launched in 2014, 95% Amazon jewelry fitness brand. I'm like, wow, they're growing 340% in the last 12 months. Whoa. Shopify site, 270 grand. That's how much they're asking right now mm -hmm. uh, for 412000 in revenue, supposedly has $127,000 of income. Um, and that does not include, you know, we understand that that does not include the uh, manager's salary and stuff. Uh, how many people are just kicking the tires saying, man, tell me more about this, Mark? Buyers are going to look at a lot of deals before they buy. Yeah. Um, okay. I would say on average, if somebody is actively looking to invest, they're going to look at anywhere between 30 to 50 businesses for sale before they actually pull the trigger on one because they have a list of criteria. So to find the difference between somebody just kicking the tires because they're interested in this versus uh, somebody who's interested in, in buying is it can be a difficult uh, determination to make. Um, there are some people out there that that don't have the most honest of intentions. Okay. Uh, those people get uh, they, they, they get exposed, and when they get exposed, they get kicked out and they get blacklisted. All right, so you uh, vet them as best as you can. You know, you said something before we go on to the next you know thing we can do to prepare. You mentioned something about investors, and it made me think about how many people who are buying, you know, in your experience, are operators versus investors. Yeah, far more uh, investors are, are cropping up now. No kidding. And that's, I was going to say, is that more new? Uh, for what reason would you say that more people are investing in it? Just because of how, how prominent uh, online sales are becoming? Uh, you know, it's probably a mixture of a change in the industry, but also my mm -hmm. perspective. Uh, so, you know, when eh. you're... When you're selling a site for $150,000, you're probably selling to somebody who's going to be an operator, not an investor. Right. 
Um, being that our average deal size has crept up over the years, um, you, you do find a different type of buyer. But I, I also think there's um, a change in the industry where uh, people understand more what makes an online business profitable and profitable for the long term. Uh, and, and they really understand more of what makes a good investment. You know, 10 years ago, there was a lot of questions at, about this. And we've, we've unfortunately learned a lot through, through some pretty hard lessons uh, and people losing money. So I think people have a better idea of where to invest their money and see it as a more viable investment avenue. Hmm. You, know, you mentioned something there, uh, things that uh, people see to, make the, to, to know that it's, um, that it's more profitable. What are some of those things other than, or are these the things that we're just talking about? Or are they basically the same thing? Because I'm thinking about what would an investor do with that, right? Do they have, like, I think here's where my mind goes, right? Um, I think of the big um, restaurant tours in New York City. Sometimes I've heard that some of them own 20 different restaurants and they're not connected. I mean, they're just literally an Italian restaurant and a Japanese restaurant, right? The only thing that they have in common is they have food, right? And they have waiters and waitresses and, and chefs. But the processes that they have, the management systems they have in place allow them to be able to put an operator in or, you know, whatever manager and, and run it. From an investor point of view, what are they doing with them? So you see the same thing in the online world, right? You'll, you'll hmm. see uh, uh, one firm that might have a certain type of specialty and they're looking for a business that meets that criteria. For example, uh, you might have uh, an investment company that, that has a handful of e-commerce businesses, handful of uh, Amazon stores, and they're really, really solid at logistics. Maybe they have their own uh, uh, ERP software, which is nobody else has, and they know that they have certain built-in advantages with that. Um, if that's the case, then they're going to look for a company that, that has a deficit in that area, and then they can plug it into their system and mm -hmm. grow it. Um, and we've seen that. I mean, that, that's nothing new. It's just a little bit more prominent. People are, are specializing in certain uh, areas. They're finding companies for sale that are weak in those areas. It has a very easy, quick growth uh, avenue to growth for these investors. Yeah, they see an immediate return, right? They can they can take that. So then, I guess in that scenario that you're describing, having real estate and employees in that would probably be a uh, detriment to that deal for that type of buyer. Not necessarily, actually. Um, I mean, some of the buyers that we see, um, their advantage is that they have employees and. Uh, have space. So uh, one of the first scenarios that I saw of this was actually a company here local to me. Um, they they had a full uh, fulfillment operation and they had about a quarter of the warehouse that wasn't being used. And so they were looking actively for uh, an e-commerce business where they could fill that space. Smart. It didn't represent that uh, much of an additional cost. They might have to hire one or two extra people, but they already have everything else in place mm -hmm. uh, for that. There's some smart people out there, dude. I mean, there really is. So, <laughs> you know, I, I mean, I, I think I think it's very cool, though, because I hope people hear that, right? 12 to 18 months, start thinking about what would it take if I'm interested in selling, you know, go out one, two years. Okay, I have to have this in place. Well, you know, Critalis, is, is there a, um, you guys do have a blog. I mean, is this where you're putting this kind of information, trying to help guide people? Yeah, so we're putting it on our blog, and um, I think probably next week or the week after we're starting, uh, well, we've already started, but we'll publish uh, our own podcast and uh, also um, a video podcast as well, which will go up on YouTube so, to get more of this information out there. So the blog uh, and everything will be on our site. Okay, uh, and I'll have links to it. What's the name of the podcast going to be? Uh, the Quiet Light Podcast. Pretty, the pretty Quiet Light Podcast with a right. TH in front of it, right? 
That's correct. Okay. I want to get that out there because I'm a podcast guy. I love it. And light is L-I-G-H-T. L-I-G-H-T. Okay, right. podcast. And you say it's launching next week? So, it should be launching next week. Okay, mm -hmm. so about the time this comes out. Awesome, awesome, awesome. Okay, so that's what people want to do. They start, want to start listening. They want to start thinking about um, getting their business ready. So we're going to make sure we have um, enhanced the business for transferability. We are going to um, get the financial statement. We're going to have clean financial statements, Mark. I mean, it's going to be good. I mean, I'm just telling you. Okay, so what's our <laughs> next? Oh, yeah, we, yeah. Well, hey, you know what? I mean, think about it. I mean, your example, how silly it sounds that – your business was worth $25,000, and within a very few years, it could have sold for $300,000. I mean, that's real money, dude. I mean, that's real yeah. money. You know, 10x. I left a lot on the table. <laughs> yeah, no, but it's just, it's fascinating to think that that's really even possible and feasible. So have you seen those same type of scenarios come across your desk even today with all the information that's out there? Is it still happening? Oh yeah, absolutely, absolutely. We we had one case uh, a few years ago. I, I didn't work on this directly, but um, simply because of documentation. And there's two other things we should talk about. Oh, I um, want to get there, but it's just fascinating me. Um, but with documentation, uh, the the seller, the person who wanted to sell his business, uh, wasn't keeping his books in the right way, and we encouraged him to take a month and spend the money to uh, recast his books in, uh, under the uh, right system. Uh, and the value of his business, I'm going to get the numbers wrong, I'm going to approximate here, uh, went from around 350000 to over $700,000 um, in a month and a half just by getting the data right. Just for that. Um, hmm. and, and so that's, again, so important, that, that data portion. It really has a big impact. And it wasn't that his the value, value of his business actually increased. It's that he was... Uh, recording the data in the wrong way before. So mm -hmm. he was falsely deflating the value of his business before, which is why we recommended change this. <laughs> so Duh, and the right. light bulb went on. It's like, ah, angels. Okay, so so we're going to get good, clean financials, Steve. We're going to have that right. What's next? Yep. So the, the two big things that I tell people to focus on, and they're really generic categories, and there's lots of things that are going to fall under these, uh, but it would be risk and growth. And, and I'm going to oversimplify this to the point of almost being silly. Um, buyers buy for one main reason. They want a return on investment. No one buys a business to lose money, right? Every, every buyer out there is buying a business because they want to get a return on that. And so you have to speak to that, which means you have to speak first to risk, what's going to kill this business or hurt it significantly, and then speak to the opportunity. These are the two conflicting forces that every buyer has <laughs> when they come to the acquisitions table. Opportunity, you know, how much am I going to benefit from this? And B, how much is this going to kill me? <laughs> those two things. Speak to those two things. Now, some practical tips uh, under risk. Take a look at areas that, that I would call single points of failure. Right? Are you relying on one vendor? Are you on Amazon only? We t discussed this uh, a little bit before. Right. So, uh, so there... both a vendor, right? So having only one vendor because you know, think of Nepal. I was having something made in Nepal, and it's a great example. And they had an earthquake, and my factory was shut down instantly. I mean, literally. Out of business. Right. So what's your B plan? Go try to find another one. Go try to find them. Go through that whole process. That takes time. That's a cost. So something simple, even if you're not using them all the time, having that backup is worth it, correct? Yeah, and I'll, I'll tell you a story on that. We actually had a scenario where uh, it was an e-commerce business on Amazon. This was just last year. And we got through the, the due diligence process. We're getting ready to, to transfer the business. The buyer reaches out to the vendor, and the vendor says, 
yeah, I'm not going to open up an account for you. In fact, Mr. Seller, because I'm not happy about this, uh, I, I'm I'm going to shut down your account within the next 48 hours. Whoa! And I'm only gonna... time in 10 years I've seen this. So people hear this, don't don't panic. It's the the guy was mental. I don't know what was going on with him. Uh, really bad business practice there. Uh, doesn't happen a lot. But fortunately, the seller had a backup vendor. He was not using him before. They were they weren't using the vendor before. But he was able to reach out to that vendor and say, "I need your product and I need it now." Uh, and they got set up within 24 hours. It delayed closing by a couple of weeks, but we still closed the business, and the business is actually healthier because of it. So, mm. um, and and so the their the new buyer is using the new vendor, no issues, and the old guy is gone. Well, that's a question. Um, so if I wanted to do that, you know. What's the conversation uh, that I have with the vendor? Hey, you know, my name's Steve. I already buy these WYSIWYGs at this other company. I'm looking for another supplier. Interested to see if you'd be interested in it, right? Okay, great. Looks like the product's great. I don't plan on buying from you. <laughs> that's where the that's the uncomfortable. I can get the first part. I sound pretty good, right? I sound really good until I say, well, you know, I'm just not ready to buy from you. Yeah, I mean, it depends on the, the industry you're in. And I have not personally had those conversations all that often. I've only owned one e-commerce business um, over the past 10 years, and I, I got rid of it pretty quickly because um, I, I didn't like working with vendors. Um, but, uh, I mean, it would essentially be, you know, can I get your, your price list? Can I get, uh, and depending on, on how you're doing things, of course, if you're manufacturing the product, it's going to be something different. But can I get your price list? Can I get your terms and conditions? Can I take a look at this? Um, this all looks good. This might be something that we're going to consider adding to our product line in the future. Okay. Okay. So by saying it that way, you are deferring it because let's face it, we are looking at divesting this business, right? We're saying 12 to 18 months, and this is something to prepare for. Okay. Exactly. Okay. All right. That's exactly. fair. Okay. So from a vendor point of view, I love that. Um, okay. Go ahead on because I'm you loving You can look it. in other places for single points of failure. Do, do you have an assistant in your business that knows every last bit of your business and runs it for you basically? That's fine. Nothing wrong with that. But make sure that uh, the processes that he or she are, are using are documented. Um, if they get sick, if they were to, you know, God forbid, die, what's your backup plan uh, for that? Because you need to have that anyways. Now, somebody buying the business is definitely going to want to see that backup plan as well in case they don't get along with that person or they want to bring in their own person or whatever the case may be have that that backup plan in place. And that comes down to, again, documentation, standard operating procedures. Standard operating procedures. That sounds like it's one of the, like the mainstays. I mean, it almost sounds as important as financial statements the way you're describing it. It's it's definitely up there. I wouldn't put it uh, up there with it, but it's it's number two, and it's it's right behind uh, the financial system. And how hard is that to pull together? I mean, you know, I mean, you've seen, I'm sure, the back of a napkin, and then you've seen probably some of the most detailed things in the world. But it's a, a seller selling a million or two million dollars worth of merchandise, probably working with a team of themselves and a few outsourced people. I mean, it's a big undertaking. You know what? It doesn't have to be. Uh, just just do a screencast, and then you can hire somebody to write it out for you if you want a formal Smart. Like, written documentation. So it, you don't have to put a ton of time into it. Uh, I would recommend you know maybe start with a pen and paper, write it down if that's difficult, if, or if it's an online process, just do a screencast and record yourself, store it. You can go to Upwork and find people that are professional uh, standard operating procedure writers, and they can write out the procedure for you if you want. Dude, you're good at this. Okay. All right. One more. You said there's one more thing we really want to consider. Yeah. So risk is is one. You've got to eliminate the risk. The other one would be growth and, and the, the recent trends of your business. Um, if you can show 
good growth or the ability to growth, prospects for growth, you're going to add value to your business. Now, I'm going to say there, there's a bad word in the world of uh, buying and selling businesses, and you should never, ever, ever use this word. Don't call me and tell me that your business has lots of potential. Ooh. No one wants to hear that word, okay? A buyer My mother like, said yeah. I had a lot of potential. <laughs> <laughs> right. <laughs> See what happened there, right? <laughs> exactly. But potential is like wishing uh, that, that something good's going to happen. That's funny. Is, is what I say. And the, the difference is this. Uh, potential is usually uh, not concrete. It, it usually starts with, this business has lots of potential, if only. And then there's this if only, and then there's a whole bunch of things that have to fall into place in order for stuff to happen. I say look at growth prospects. And the the reason I like prospects better is it makes me think of like mining for oil or something like that, where you can do studies before and see, you know what? Yep, there's oil down there. We just have to dig and get into it, but we know how much is there. That's going to be the difference, right? So growth prospects would be, uh, hey, we've been growing the last 10 to 15 years. It's not stopping at all. That right there is an indication of reasonable growth prospects. Another growth prospect would be uh, we have uh, 300 new SKUs that we can add, and we know that that when we add SKUs in the past, it adds as much to revenue. That's a growth prospect right there. And we we just haven't gotten around to writing the descriptions and putting it up on the site or adding it to Amazon. Those are growth prospects. So when I say my business is, you know, that's grown by 10% the last three years, now is going to grow by 300%, and I would like you to base the multiple on that, that doesn't go very far. No. And, you know, for most people that have established businesses, we don't have to worry too much about the potential uh, thing that it's often with people that have businesses that they tried to launch and didn't, it didn't take off. And they say, can I get my money back? I think this idea still has lots of potential. Well, you tried, you failed, and somebody else is going to have to take that risk. But yeah, right. It, you you don't want to sell on potential. You want to grow sell on the growth prospects. I've seen prepared. it on Shark Tank. I've seen it. <laughs> yeah, yeah, of course, right. Be prepared when you're talking about the growth avenues that somebody can take with your business. Be prepared to answer the question, "Why haven't you done right, this?" Right. Exactly. Right. Right. So what? If, if that's really there, why haven't you done this? But, and there's often really good reasons. But yeah. Well, it, it, you said something. You know, I failed. I brought a product to market. It didn't work but I executed it poorly. Does that mean there's no value in that? Um, or is there still potential value in that business? You're going to have a hard time getting value out of it. Even if I got all this inventory, I got all these three-toed socks sitting in my warehouse. You mean there's not going to be a lot of value there? <laughs> no, it's going to be pretty hard to get the value out of that. So with, with a failed execution plan where you're going to put all the, uh, all of the onus on whoever's buying the business, what they're going to say is, I'll give you a little bit of money, and then if I'm successful, I'll give you a little bit more money. So oh. they're going to do like this earn out sort of deal. Okay, but that that means that there's still potential. I mean that that that's better than what I thought you would say because you know it's funny. I think about some of the uh, dealer auctions I go to, and I see failed fi- private label businesses. I mean, I see it. You know, and, and we've been doing Amazon for so long, you can tell by the uh, the way they're they're uh, they're packaged and all that jazz. And I think to myself, ooh, that wasn't a good thought. Um, I'm sure they went into it thinking, oh, my God, this three-toed sock is going to be the best thing in the world. And then they didn't, or, you know, the tomato slicer, the Vegematic, the, what am I seeing a million of, the barbecue gloves, all the same stuff, right? And mm-hmm. uh, spinners, you know, I'm going to make millions in spinners, right? Um, I'm going to sell them now. Um, probably not a good business model. But so I've seen those private label things, but they're going for pennies upon pennies, on the dollar. I mean, that's it. Really nothing. But what you're saying is that there could be some value as long as, hey, 
I'll take the chance. You're not getting a dime now, but let me help sell it. And as it sells, I'll give you a small percentage or something like that. That's optimistic. Hmm. Yeah, yeah. I mean, and, and you have to show why the execution was bad and not the idea, right? I mean, that's that's kind of crucial to right. that, where you, right. where you can say, yeah, you know what? We, we tried. This is where we failed. It's correctable, uh, but we don't have the funds to do it anymore. Or I'm burnt out. Totally legit reason to, to say that you want to get out. Um, but you have to be able to show why why the, it was the execution and not the idea. And you guys are not a business that sells products, right? So I have, oh man, I invented this great iPhone case. Unbelievable. I'm looking to find someone to bring it to market and do all the rest of it. That's not your model, correct? Right. That That's not our model. Okay. No, nor, nor would we really be out there finding the people for those complex earnouts. Um, it's just, it's a different different type of sale. Okay. Okay. All right. And so, I mean, clearly I hope people are getting that Mark knows what he's talking about. The, the website is fascinating. Just to go out there and look, um, quietlightbrokerage.com. Um, and you sit there and you look at what is there. So here's an Amazon FBA uh, business selling women's apparel, explosive 400% year over year growth, uh, revenue 1.8 million, asking price 1.4 uh, uh, I forget what you called it, but it's not even, it's some kind of earnings, um, $419,000. And then on the other extreme is another women's apparel store, all on, uh, on Amazon, almost entirely, so I assume everything, doing $7 million in revenue. They're only looking for $4 million. Um, and I'm assuming this has something to do with the Amazon's getting into the apparel business themselves, and there's probably, you know, apparel's hot and cold, you know, depending on the year. But there are there are many different extremes. So you have different levels. And then I saw one that was only selling for 100 and some odd thousand dollars, asking 189,000 vaporizers. So mm-hmm. you really do c- kind of cover the gamut. So let's just talk about this from the buyer's perspective. So I, I think we I think you've done an amazing job of talking about how to prepare your business to get ready. And I'm assuming I'll have contact here. So if somebody is thinking about this, you're open to talking to them, correct? Yeah. And we've said that 12 to 18 month uh, window. Mm -hmm. I really, really encourage people to talk to a broker, talk to somebody knowledgeable in that 12 to 18 month window before, because we can show you what you're looking at right now reasonably for your business, but more importantly, what that might look like in 12 to 18 months. And if there's any significant obstacles that's going to deflate the value of the business, uh, hopefully be able to identify those early on. What people need to keep in mind is the value of your business is often tied towards whatever the last 12 months uh, of uh, discretionary earnings are. Oh. And so if you have like a really bad month or if you have a problem uh, if that happened last month, you're usually best served by waiting 12 months to let that fall off, uh, fall outside of that period. Um, and, and so that's why we say 12 to 18 months. Contact us then. That way you can make the changes, be able to put it on the, the history and and uh, get the best value. Now, there's there's exceptions to all these things. This, this is an incredibly complex process. You brought up a couple of uh, differing valuations and, uh, the, on, on our site. And I can just tell you that there are dozens and dozens of factors which impact uh, evaluation. Um, which is why it's important just to, to reach out. Let us take a look at the business. We don't charge anything. Yeah, for I was going to say let's let's get into the money. But you do charge a percentage when it sells, right? Um, yep. yep. What, we do charge a percentage. Do you it, say it the percentage? About, it averages out to about ten percent. Okay, and, so ten percent, which is reasonable. Yeah. Yep, yep, that's always yeah. reasonable in a brokerage thing. Okay, so about ten percent, and then any other fees, I guess, that would come along with that, right? Legal fees, all that kind of jazz. 
Right. So we recommend that everyone have their own accountant and their own attorney as well to be able to review the final documents. We're not attorneys. We're not accountants. And within your own local state, and we work in all 50 states and we work uh, in, in multiple countries as well. Uh, I can't know the laws of every jurisdiction uh, down down to the individual laws. So you need to have that attorney there to make sure that you're following the local laws uh, appropriately. Do you help with the sales agreement, though? Yep. So we, we provide boilerplate uh, okay. agreements. And then right. we that's where we say, okay, here's here's this so you can save the legal fees. Send this to your attorney and just understand you know, our, our documents have been written and rewritten and rewritten and rewritten again. Uh, so your attorney shouldn't go out and completely throw this out. But they should be making changes to modify it specifically for your deal. Okay, and especially statewide, that kind of thing. Okay, so what I want to close with, um, and I'll have the contact info. Matter of fact, you might as well throw it out there now because I, because I, I think it's important. I think people are right now who are thinking about selling their business, I think it's solid advice. Talk to somebody now, even if it's two years out. Talk to somebody now and say, hey, here's what you can do to enhance the value. Here's a reasonable expectation that you can reasonably expect to get for a business that's doing this, that's having the growth, that's having all those things. Because I think it'll help people make a decision. So give us the contact information. Sure. So you can just go to quietlightbrokerage.com and click on the button that says get a free valuation. Fill out the form there. That's going to be the best way to get a valuation to reach okay. me personally, Perfect. it's right. Mark right. at QuietLightBrokerage.com. Mark at, uh, we cut out for a second there, Mark at QuietLightBrokerage. Yep. M-A-R-K at QuietLightBrokerage.com. Okay. Uh, if you just do a Google search on my name, it'll probably come up as well somewhere. Okay. And there's an about us, and there's all the you know the the, the uh, members of the team there. Last last question, last point of view. I'm coming in and I'm thinking about buying them because I think what you said was a good example. They they have capacity, right? They're sitting around. The team can handle you know another you know another great product or product line. We can just bring it in. We can integrate it with their system. We just need, we don't want to go through the development phase ourselves. We want to take something that's established. We want to bring it in. And so I'm looking at these businesses that are for sale. So give us the real short version on what to be looking for if I'm a potential buyer now. Well, what you're looking for, I mean, you first have to understand what you want and what you need. I've, I've had people contact me that say, I'm thinking about doing an acquisition of an online business. I say, okay, great. What, what type of online business? Well, I don't know. <laughs> Oops. That's a place to start, right? Yeah. That's, you understand that, that uh, the difference between an e-commerce business and a SaaS business, the world's apart, uh, that they're completely different types of business models. So understand that and then get down to a more granular level from there even to understand, hey, if I'm looking for an e-commerce business, do I want it to be Amazon only so I can take it off? Do I want Shopify? And then what am I good at as well? so that I can take a look at at uh, maybe businesses that might be deficient in that area so I can get a better return on investment. So it really starts with sort of uh, who, what you personally want and, and a little self-assessment of, of your skills. Um, and then from there, uh, what I do recommend people do, and we talked about tire kicking and stuff like that, but I do recommend taking a look at some of the, uh, the, the businesses for sale out there right now, requesting information, and being respectful with that information, of course, everything's under confidentiality, but get used to seeing how these businesses businesses are presented and prepared. Um, the really, really good businesses for sale often get offers within a few days. Really? And so you have to be willing to move and move quickly. Um, uh, so uh, getting familiar with that, being un- understanding what I'm looking for, it, it allows you to be able to move quickly without uh, without uh, getting in a really big competitive uh, environment. 
Okay, I love it. And and I think by by looking at that, you're gonna, as you said, uh, the really good buyers are looking at many deals before they pull the trigger. And actually, I did have two more questions. Um, do you have a list of potential buyers that you uh, or investors, I guess, because we said that a lot of them are investors out there? Is that one of the benefits of using a brokerage like yours? Absolutely. So we, uh, we have a list of uh, active buyers, and what I would say that the, the benefit. Every broker has buyers, and if you want to find buyers, you can find buyers on your own. So I'm not going to sit here and say this is the number one benefit of using a broker. The benefit, uh, as far as the buyers that we work with, however, is that we've established relationships with a lot of these And you've vetted them, I'm assuming. You've vetted them. Make sure they're real. Exactly. And so uh, and we can tell you, and we can tell you sometimes, hey, we haven't worked with this buyer before, and now mm-hmm. we know, okay, we need to be looking for maybe certain things or ask them different questions. Other times, we can say they've bought three businesses from us before. We know what they're like. They're tough in due diligence, but they're good people. You know, those are the, the sort of feedback from the buyer standpoint you know, that, that uh, we can really add value. And my last question, my last of the last of the last, right? And this came up last week at a, a retreat I was at in a conversation. And I thought, huh, I'm going to be talking to a gentleman and I want to ask this question. Sales tax is a huge issue right now out there in the e-commerce world. And I'm not asking you for accounting advice. Um, however... You know, that's a real issue. So, you know, good financial statements, good standard operating procedures. What about sales tax? I mean, what have you seen? Um, Has that become an issue on your radar? Um, Are buyers concerned about that issue right now, Um, this e-commerce thing? I'm so glad that you asked that question. Yes, yes, yes. Um, (laughs) Yes, 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 yes. Anyone listening to this, if you have any question about whether or not you should be paying those sales taxes and identifying where you have nexus, do it. Um, if, if you ever have any idea or, or thought of selling your business, it will become an issue. Um, uh, your listeners probably know about the sales tax amnesty program that's going on right now. Mm-hmm. I believe it got extended to the end of this month. Um, and if you live in one of those states, I'm not an expert in this area, but uh, take a look at the sales tax amnesty program and uh, take advantage of that uh, if you have the opportunity. I can tell you we've seen um, scenarios where, where uh, deals have either fallen apart uh, or uh, sellers have had to take substantially less money to account for the potential of those sales tax liabilities coming up and rearing their ugly heads. And I totally get it. You know, 2012, 2013, no one was talking about this. Most accountants said you don't have to worry about it. And now people are saying, oops, you actually do. And, and there's the whole issue of, you know, what do you do with from years prior? Uh, it's something people don't want to address, but I would really recommend addressing it. Hmm. And and it's really relevant on Amazon FBA specific. That's what Nexus, right? Yes. Where, where your inventory stored. So so that's really relevant. And a lot of listeners are going to be talking about. It. So very interesting. I, that is the answer I expected. Um, but I just wanted to make sure we we did address that. And is that one of the things that you now are asking right up front? Yep, we'll ask right up front. And you know, sometimes my clients say, "Do you really have to ask this question?" And <laughs> my answer is, "Yep, I got to ask it. Just answer it honestly." And if you haven't, uh, if you haven't filed for those those taxes and, and done that, then you know I've had clients where we've we've been able to sell the business regardless, uh, but at least we're being upfront about it. Right. And, and that buyer knows, okay, this is a potential issue out there. Uh, now I know about it, and they can account for it. The last thing that you want is for somebody to get surprised after because then then you're in trouble. Yeah, then you're <laughs> we, in real trouble. We don't trouble. want that. Yeah, you don't want to go all the way down there and then stop. Okay. Mark, man, this is awesome. So it's marketquietlightbrokerage.com. Podcast coming out, The Quiet Light Podcast. 
uh, coming out where you're going to be talking about these things. And again, quietlightbrokerage.com is the website. Man, oh man, very informative. Um, probably ask you back uh, maybe in about a year or so to see how, you know, what's new going on in the business. Because it's, it's definitely changing rapidly. And I'm fascinated when I sit there. you got to go look at this site, people, and just look through some of the listings and say, huh. I think I know, actually, some of these people, I think I know who they are um, because it's such a small world, which is really cool. I mean, it's really cool, and I hope they sell it for as much as they want. That would be awesome, and they could take me out to dinner. So thank you so much. I appreciate it. Thanks for having me. It was a lot of fun. Yeah. I wish you nothing but success. Take care. Hope you like that last, 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 last question. Um, Silly how I I did that, but eh, it is what it is. Um, When you talk with a guy like that, all I can do is think of more questions, but I think he did a great job explaining the value that they bring. 10% might sound like a lot of money, and you know I guess it is, but man, there's a lot of little details. And if you could start investing in your business now, so think two years out. If there's a chance you want out, start planning now. And he gave some great tips on how to do that. So ecommercemomentum.com, ecommercemomentum.com. I'm very excited about the upcoming lineup of guests that I have coming up because it's just these kind of things build on each other. These successes, right, that you start to see. Hey, I'm going to be in uh, Ecom Chicago uh, just about by the time this comes out. Um, if you're not there, I don't know if they still have tickets, but you know, pop in. I think there's a $20 off coupon somewhere floating around. Uh, if you're going to be in Chicago, make sure you come and say hi to me. Um, definitely love to meet you. Um, looking forward looking forward to talking to other sellers. I love, love, love it. So ecommercemomentum.com. Don't forget my sponsors. Uh, Seller Labs, man, get your scope on. It's Q4, Q4 Solutions for e-commerce. Karen Locker is on it. Man, I just saw something else come through my inbox. Boom, handled. Love it, love it, love it. Ecommercemomentum.com. Take care. Thanks for listening to the e-commerce momentum podcast. All the links mentioned today can be found at ecommercemomentum.com under this episode number. Please remember to subscribe and like us on iTunes.